welcome to episode 402 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. In today's episode, we're going to continue our Films of Greg Araki series with a trio of movies uh, that he made called The Teenage Apocalypse. Um, that is Totally Fucked Up from 1993, uh, The Doom Generation from 1995, and Nowhere from 1997. Um, which we'll get into in the second part, but uh, Nowhere, just a, a giant amount of just strange cameos from very recognizable faces yeah um is nowhere the one that has uh denise richards in it for a second yeah like she doesn't Shout even have a you. line she's just there and i'm like oh hey it's my crush and then she's gone yeah yeah she has like one line and is in a bikini and you're like oh <laughs> yeah. hey what's up um, i mean i will take denise richard like a bonus denise richards in a bikini in any movie like if i if i have to choose between no denise richards in a movie and just random denise richards in a movie we're not gonna be picky yeah sure yeah i think that's a that's a that's a safe stance to take <laughs> we're taking the, <laughs> the, the, the uh, controversial stances here on cinematary this week that's what we do yeah. um all right well, let's go ahead and jump into it i'm gonna talk about you know post post uh uh drive my car i've been trying to watch because criterion channel has i think all the other three ryusuke hamaguchi movies um, they have happy I, hour they do and so i mm-hmm. i'm probably gonna i'm gonna find a weekend where i'm gonna i will sit there and watch happy hour just because i've enjoyed yeah. all three of the movies the so far. commitment i am it's gonna be i'm excited he like the one thing i'll say is he's like he's got some very compelling he's a compelling writer i enjoy it um but uh, so I'm gonna, I'll start with first the the oldest of the two, and that's Asako one and two from 2018. I think this was the one. Well, Happy Hour got him some acclaim, but this is one that I think I I recognized him more for because I remember people talking about it when it came out. Um, but for those who are unfamiliar, um, it follows Asako, who is a college student, and she kind of has like this like like over the top meet cute with this uh guy named baku um at this photography exhibit which is kind of it's pretty it's kind of adorable and it's but because it's just like so over the top um and so they have like this very you know uh young love summer fling type romance um but like (laughs) baku has this his character feature is that he just disappears at, for long periods of time, which sounds like a wonderful quality that you want in a partner. <laughs> yeah. um, and like, it's funny because at one point he, he like he's like, I'm gonna go get some bread, and he like, and it's like at you know eight o'clock at night, and he's just gone the rest of the night. Now, and when then you like, say he disappears, is there a supernatural thing in the no, movie? No, no, he just he just he goes just, people. He just goes because no, like she goes, like she wakes up the next morning and because they're at his like his friend's house and they're having dinner and they're like hanging out and and then like she wakes up the next morning she's like where's Baku and he's just like oh yeah he just does that he just you know and then Baku comes back he's like oh yeah like I ran into this guy when I was getting bread and then this I went over to his house and we got drunk and I forgot I gave him the bread and then I went to a spa and then now I'm here and you're just like okay. 
but like she's just kind of Asako is just kind of this very like this very timid shy character you can tell that like she hasn't really had any type of like romantic relationships with with anyone and that like this one you know she just kind of really throws herself into this romance with with Baku and so um that that's uh, probably the first like 30 or 40 minutes or so of the movie and then it it, it time jumps saying that he just disappears for like six months you know and so she just like the relationship has to end and so it time jumps to about two years later and Asako uh, is living in I don't think it's Tokyo but it's like another like prominent like a big Japanese uh, city in Japan um, and she's working at a coffee shop and she uh, s- like sees this guy who looks exactly like him, but with like a much more like a kind of because he Baku has like this like teen heartthrob, like shaggy haircut, um, looks like a Final Fantasy character. Um, and And so she sees this guy who looks like him, but seems more like he's, you know, together in life. Um, and so initially this guy who is not Baku, he's a completely different person. Um, it, you know, is, is kind of is infatuated with her, is kind of trying to, you know, spark a relationship, but she, like, she's just, like, completely shut down from him because I think, like, in the back of her mind, she thinks that, like, it's Baku punking her. He's going to leave. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, so then finally, after a while, she realizes, no, like, she has to come to the, like, oh, this is a different person. Like, and so then, like, the for the rest of the movie is really interesting because it's kind of her having to fall in love with this person and kind of get over this, like, made up um, fantasy that she put, uh, that she kind of created for herself um, until, and then it time jumps about five, again, like, I think another five or six years and she's in a much more committed relationship with this guy his name's uh, rohai um like the you know they live together they got a cute little cat um that they that that runs around their house um and then a friend who you had met in the in the first part of the movie from uh when she was growing up and dating baku uh comes into town and kind of stirs up all that stuff and reveals that baku is now like this um like very well-known model and movie actor and so um it kind of like spurs asako you know she's she's been living like this very um not boring but like uh uh gosh what's the word i'm I'm thinking of like domestic no just like very domestic life like she she Mm. has a partner they they go like on the weekends to like this like this festival where they're like eating all these oysters and other good food that I was like this fucking sounds awesome like why why are you complaining they go about this buy bread without abandoning each other in the that's process that's a big thing yeah that's a yeah. big that's a big thing um and so you know it's kind of this push and pull between this uh kind of this fantasy relationship that she that she had that she really never kind of got to complete and um, kind of fighting this urge to uh, to kind of live this domestic life. And I won't spoil the ending because I think it goes in this interesting direction that I was like a little apprehensive to at first, but then reading some reviews and thinking about it later, I kind of appreciated it because I, I thought there were some nice perspectives on her point of view. Um, but I really liked it. it. It's it's I think that, like I mentioned before, Hamaguchi's really good at kind of laying out these scenarios and ex- kind of exploring these worlds 
in fascinating ways. He kind of just kind of creates these these characters who are just kind of unique is, is a is a kind of basic word. They they just kind of have like these these very set definite definitive character traits that you kind of are annoyed by, but at the same time feel very relatable to a degree. Um, you know, Asako, I was reading some of the letterbox reviews and people are just like, fuck Asako. Like she seems like a <laughs> shitty person. Um, but then like, I, uh, uh, then I was like reading, um, Kristen Yunsu Kim has a really, uh, nice perspective on it where she kind of talks about like, yeah, this is just kind of this girl who, um, you know, I think that they portray like this, uh, this idea of kind of you know you have these 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 relationships developed in your head with somebody that really you know it sounds nice on paper but in reality it's not the same thing and so she's for you know even though she kind of has like this very settled domestic life uh, a you know a, a strong partnership with this person like there's something about this this on paper relationship with this guy who she you know had a six month fling with in college that sounds that like that's like that's where she should be living like she should be living just in, a little bit in that chaos um and to me that was kind of i think i think it i think that hamaguchi explores that in a fascinating way i think that this movie you know again like like it didn't sit with me totally 100 percent well like on a, like right after it ended um but the more i thought about it i think that there's i think it does kind of capture just that uncertainty and how we kind of not even just like in romantic relationships but just in relationships in general we kind of have like this this is what we think the relationship is but then you know there's a like a human being with uh, like thoughts yeah. and feelings and things and on the like other side of that of, conception of what the relationship is is being colored by relationships you've had in the past and like projecting things onto this relationship based on things that you have experienced from other people you're exactly. assuming everybody is going to do exactly right. and so um i th- i, I kind of i don't know i just really i really i really vibed with that and so this one was good i it's i reckon it's right now on criterion channel with um the next one i'm going to talk about as well as his first film happy hour but um why did i think this movie was about a clone it's because it has the picture the poster has like two of her and is, so it, it's and, actually just like here's the first part of her life here's the second part of her life yeah i mean the the there's two you know the actor who plays baku is also the actor who plays rohai but and they're but they're not the mm. same person they're not like okay. related in any way so it's just I, the same I actor think i've seen the trailer for this and i think that i thought i saw those two that actor in two roles or whatever and thought that like that must have been Asako one and Asako two. No, 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 no. No, different there's thing. no yeah, there's no clones. It's just it's just yeah, it's just two I mean that's what Asako thinks for at least twenty five minutes right. of the movie. So Yeah. <laughs> um the other one I watched uh, I watched a few weeks ago, but this was the other movie of his that came out in twenty twenty one, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. And honestly I might like this one more than Drive My Car, which I liked um but this one was this i i I, uh i told michael last week that he would enjoy this because i I feel like um he's also somebody who enjoys like uh uh you know short story movies where you just like you have a movie with just like three different stories um and this one compared to a movie we talked about earlier this year my home which had three stories but like 
waned in Wait. quality. My home? It was called something else. Is it my home or H- house? The, something or else. The house or whatever, whatever the stop motion Netflix movie was. Um, right. Whatever that movie was, it like, but it's three different. It's three separate stories, and it like kind of wanes in quality. This one I feel like is like steady, if not getting better in each one. Um, and so they each follow a female character. The first one is this woman who. Um, uh, is you know you meet her with her best friend and her best friend's telling her about this like guy she met and how they like had this whole romantic kind of they met each other and then they had like this whirlwind night and all this stuff and you can um, if you're familiar with like uh, you know some of his other films especially like Drive My Car where it has like these kind of long monologue scenes like you have this long monologue scene of her explaining this whole attraction and, and meeting with this guy um, and I guess you know part of the way through the explanation the woman real, the, 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 person, the protagonist that you're following realizes that this is like an ex-boyfriend of hers um, and her friend does not know that and so it and so that like you follow this kind of like strange uh, love triangle triangle between the three of them um, the second story is about this there's like a guy there's a, uh, a professor who like has put out this book um, and uh, there's a student who this guy who is is sleeping with this woman who the guy he just doesn't like this teacher for whatever reason he's just like that he's like no i hate this guy and so when he learns that the woman he's sleeping with who um is married a little bit older um like kind of has a crush on him and enjoys his writing he's like oh he's like you should honey trap her honey trap him and so like the the majority of the story is her trying to like is her reading this book that he wrote that he wrote that like has this very erotic scene and she's just like reading it to him trying to like seduce him into having sex with her um and then it just kind of falls apart after that and then the third one is about this woman who uh goes to her hometown for a high school reunion and runs into this other woman at the train station thinking it was this friend of hers from high school that she hadn't seen in forever um only for both of them to realize once they've gotten to this woman's house that they don't know who the hell either of the you know who, who either of them are like they've never met in their lives they just <laughs> they both just thought they were somebody that they recognized and, it, and it's like this really like it's like it's really like this really wonderful like strange like interaction for the rest of the movie but uh, for the rest of the story between Do the two of them become friends kind of like they have this nice day together and it's well and, it, and i think the point of it is kind of like they both have these these kind of things that are like lingering on their minds that they just kind of want to get out and there's something about you know talking it through and kind of exploring it with a stranger that like helps them through both of the problems that they're kind of dealing with um but no i think i thought all three were i thought all three were pretty good i think um you know that it it it's it reminds me a little bit of drive my car where um they each have like kind of these one location like relatively single shot monologue sequences where um you know he kind of just takes you into a bunch of different directions you know like for instance when you're at this person's house and they're talking and you're slowly you're slowly realizing as well as they're slowly realizing that they have no idea who the hell each other are um 
is just kind of like a fun sequence to kind of take uh, to like take part in. And the thing I like about Hamaguchi's films, the, at least the ones that I've watched, is he's very good at like writing these scenarios that kind of take you on these long winding pathways that um, kind of come back and relate to relate to parts at the beginning, but just like they really like take you on these journeys within these like ten minute long sequences. Um, that are just very like kind of deeply satisfying and um, and, and you know very very uh, very literary in a way um, and so I don't know are all of his other movies original screenplays because Drive My Car is a Murakami yeah story. let me look I think the others are they, I mean he wrote the he wrote the screenplay I think Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is is three short short stories that he oh he's adapting or did he write all three? I think he wrote all three. I'm not seeing adapted. You know, I'm looking at the look at the old IMDb. Yeah, written by written by Amaguchi. So you said that you really like him as a writer. Is that why you would say? Would you say you like both of these more than Drive My Car because it's like his stories? Um, I think Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is probably probably my favorite. Um, just because I think that. Like I said, all three stories are very well, like, ni- like tied up very nicely, neatly contained, and I think you know, emotionally resonant each like in in each in three different ways that you kind of come out of it going like, I don't know. To me, I had a very like satisfying experience, uh, just kind of coming out of all three and thinking about them. Um, I I still like I've I've been talking to people about drive my car recently. Um, and what's up, Cooper? Um, Cooper's doing all sorts of things over here. But I was because people have been talking about like the length of that movie, and like I like I don't I, you know the thing I've been saying is like I don't mind the length of the movie. I think movies need to be as long as they need to be. And the in the thing that's nice about that one is I think it earns its long length because you a lot of it is just like these really long monologue sequences or kind of introspective you know driving sequences and i think all of that kind of leads into um all that leads into you know so that it leads to the conclusion being very resonant because you've had all of these you know these character moments these introspective moments you know you've been sitting there for two and a half hours to that point and so when the you know the kind of big final scene happens between him and the girl when they go to the the burned down house like there's something that I think that that it emotionally hits you more, not because of like necessarily the dialogue, but just more like you've, you've been sitting here for two and a half hours, just really like getting inside the psyche of both these characters and they really haven't emoted very much. And so then they finally just break down and like you finally go up, like there's just like this elation of, of emotion. And I think he just does that so expertly. Definitely a fan of directors who, let their movies be the exact length they need to be, whether that's very long or very short. Um, yeah. So. And so that, that's, it's just, that's, I've been having that conversation for whatever reason about drive my car. Cause people are just like three hours yeah. and I'm like, well, there's lots of movies that are three hours. Yeah. I'll, I'll just be, I'll be for transparency purposes, purposes. It was, it came out of a conversation when I said that everything everywhere was too long. So that is true. <laughs> No, we already talked about that. So then it just it just dovetailed into yeah. other stuff. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, highly recommend both of those. And if you haven't seen Drive My Car, watch Drive My Car also. Yeah. Um, both the both the ones I talked about are on Criterion Channel, and Drive My Car is on HBO Max. Nice. So, um, yeah, you're gonna bring us back into the uh, into the you know we got away from the video essays right. for a while. You've been safe for too long from the video essays, but yeah, I did not watch any proper movies this week because I had three. Uh, Gregor Rocky movies to watch. I did, however, watch a long feature-length video essay um, called Disney's Fast Pass, colon, A Complicated History. Um, it is from a YouTube channel called Defunct Land, um, which makes these, like, I think really, you know, stat and history-heavy um, analyses of theme parks um, with a particular emphasis on disney theme parks um and michael told me about this video um quite a while ago when we were planning out the the lefty video essay series um and i did not end up watching it then um because it seemed like a daunting task it's an hour and 45 minutes um but i saw somebody logging on letterboxd and they said something about the the guy who makes the videos for this channel his name is kevin perjurer um, and praising his ability to talk about Disney and like all the ins and outs of Disney without necessarily like coming across as a fan or even like approving <laughs> of like Disney's existence slash business decisions. Um, so I, I had, you know, time to kill and I decided to pull up this video essay and I did get really sucked into it. Um, it is about, lines and the philosophy of queuing and like the first part of it is like what is a line um and like here are all the different ways that people form lines for things um and it turns out like disney has actually um been a pretty big factor in like why so many lines are the way they are like i i believe um if i'm remembering the video correctly that disneyland or disney world i forget which was the first place to ever institute like um snaking lines to make the line for a ride seem shorter than it actually is um which is why we now have like snaking lines in like airport security for example um but this is just like this video is sort of an exhaustive history of like the fast pass system at disney and like all the different systems they tried to put in place before it um and then all the different ways they've tried to like tack stuff onto it afterwards to make it more profitable or less like logistically nightmarish or whatever um and like i said very stat heavy I got a bit lost in the stats at times. Um, but in that way, it's kind of similar to like a John Boyce video, which I know uh, Cam talked about a couple of weeks prior. Like um, this guy, Kevin Perjurer, is really good at making something really dry like this, um, very compelling. Um, and, and not only compelling, but like um meaningful and like feels important by the end of it because it does eventually get to the place that a lot of lefty video essays get to where like he doesn't really show his hand about the political side of things at the beginning but eventually once you're like an hour plus in he's like 
And here's how the Disney fast pass system is actually about class warfare, <laughs> you know, but like he's kind of built it up so much at that point. He's made the case that like, yeah, I can totally see why that is the case. Um, and one thing that kind of makes this stand out, I think, is his I guess there's two things that make it stand out. One is his use of graphics, like a lot of YouTube video essays, you know, if they're not made by people like ContraPoints who are like getting in front of the camera and filming themselves and doing something really big and theatrical. A lot of them are just, you know, stock footage or people talking over clips of movies or whatever. Um, and for a lot of this is like digital images that he has created or he has paid somebody to create like these big um, diagrams. Kind of, again, kind of like a John Boyce video would have um, that can be really interesting. Um, and then the other thing that makes it that like makes it stand out to me is that eventually the video essay takes a sharp left turn into like an actual like computer simulation of a supposedly theoretical theme park that he like paid an engineer to make um, to illustrate a point <laughs> about theme parks and lines and money and things like that. Um, that's like really you know, did not have to do that. Like, really extra in in the best way. Like, just grateful that he decided to go the extra mile and include this whole ass thing tacked on to um, what was already, like, a very well-researched and argued piece. Um, so, again, I, the one negative for me is that I did get lost in it a couple of times. Um, but aside from that, I think it is very good. Um, and would recommend people check it out, um, especially if they, like us, are skeptical to critical of the Disney company. Um, Let me, and this is a perfect day to address that since yeah. it's it's May the Fourth be with you. We're recording this on Wednesday, um, yeah, and like so, like they were gonna put something today, like why? Disney and Star Wars are multi-million billion dollar companies. Like mm-hmm. they don't need they don't need any other help marketing their bullshit. So like why are we helping? I don't know. Right. I would like but to I'm market t- anti-Disney propaganda on this Like day. I'm just, you know, I'm just like why I don't know. I just like I couldn't deal with it today, people. I'm just I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm just tired. Strangely, that was that wasn't the most you know exhausting news cycle item of the of the day. You know, as that wasn't you know. There's been other stuff this week. I work at a super super nerdy school, and I actually got through the day only hearing somebody say "May the Fourth be with you" once. Well, and and that's the silly like that's the silly thing is like it's it's not like counterculture nerdy culture. It's it's when when your movie makes like billion dollars when it comes out it's not it's not you know what we're about to talk about is counterculture true yeah (laughs) that is not counterculture that is culture unrelated or i guess mostly unrelated i saw a really good tweet today of somebody talking about the way that the disney star wars trilogy was like going out of its way to not be like the prequel trilogy but they didn't really account for the fact that a lot of the the kids who would be watching it grew up on the prequel trilogy and actually kind of like them. Um, I, that is true, and I like how 
because I like how they also reacted so, um, in a way to the um, rejection of the Last Jedi, oh, which is yeah. which is the best Star Wars movie out of all of them. It is. And, I agree. Yeah. And they they responded to that by just make you know like. They, like that's that what they make now is just like a don't worry like we're never gonna do that again don't don't worry about it <laughs> yeah um and I, and I, I always i always say that um you know in a galaxy far far away there's like seven fucking characters that we just use over and over again True, yeah. so <laughs> on that anti-star wars rant we'll go into a break um we're going to talk about the teenage apocalypse trilogy um after this of episode 402 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to cover the Teen Apocalypse Trilogy by Greg Araki. Um, we're going to start it out with 1993's Totally Fucked Up. Uh, it stars, I mean, we'll just preface that all three of these star James Duvall. So, they do, but yeah. D- uh, James Duvall, Rocco Bellic, Susan Bashid, and Jenny uh, uh, Gill. Uh, and it follows gay, alienated Los Angeles teens who have a hard time as their parents kick them out of their homes. They don't have any money. Their lovers cheat, and they are harassed by gay bashers. Um, Iraqi classified it as, quote, a ragtag story of the, sorry, Fag and Dyke uh, teen underground, uh, a kind of cross between avant-garde experimental cinema and, queer, and a queer John Hughes flick. Um the film makes extensive use of handheld video camcorder, which one of the characters uses to provide insight into the in- lives of other characters through interview-like discussion. Uh, the technique becomes became popular through the ni- 1990s, evident also in such later films as Reality Bites, American Beauty, and The Blair Witch Project. Araki himself revisited the camcorder idea in his 1997 film Nowhere, which we'll talk about at the end of this. Um, Araki has said they shoot on, they shot on 16 millimeter film without permits and that the film had quote, virtually no crew that he operated the camera himself accompanied by only a sound person and a producer PA as, as well as the cast. Um, so yeah, let's jump into totally fucked up. Uh, this was out of the three probably my favorite um, it was my least favorite so i'm curious to yeah uh, I, I think that michael I, said in the slack um that it seems like everybody has had a different response to all three movies like everybody in the cinematic crew who's watched them so it'll be yeah. interesting to kind of bounce um, ideas back and forth about these I didn't. I'll, I'll. I'll say I didn't like any of these more than Living End. I thought that that's still the best one I've seen. Um, 
This one, though, this is at its best, at least in my opinion, when they're just like wandering around like 3 a.m. Los Angeles. Right. Like when they're just kind of, when they're like walking, just walking just around, walking, walking through, through the parking station. garage. You know? Yeah, but it like has like this like I real like this kind of um I'm trying to kind of get comparison, but like there's just this kind of like urban beauty to like you know gas station lights and and fast food uh f- you know fast food restaurants and things like that like there's just something kind of kind of nice about that setting. It's generally just well, them. The characters talk about it. They talk about like the city at night when everybody is asleep feeling like a ghost town like a bomb's been dropped and we didn't notice or something like that yeah um and so like at its best to me that was that was what i liked the most when when you just kind of have those wandering moments where they're just kind of talking and just rambling around um and then when it got into more of like the the story structure and like the relationships i just i wasn't as like engaged into that yeah it really turns on a dime or maybe maybe it turns on a dime is the wrong phrase because it's it's actually maybe more so gradually that you don't notice it happening that it becomes a movie that has a plot and has like relationship dynamics that it has ex- been expecting you to keep track of throughout the movie because there's so many characters in this movie yeah like it's doing and i a, and i thought it was going to um, be more of like a dazed and confused like just everybody you know like nowhere is more... already kind of flitting in and out yeah, of the yeah, focus yeah, yeah. of the movie yeah and like I just wasn't really following or internalizing a lot of these uh, different dynamics until like it all really matters and I was lost <laughs> for the last part. But I guess also a big part of why I wasn't internalizing a lot of it is because I found just a lot of it to be pretty boring. Um, I agree with you that like there is some immaculate vibes on display when the characters just kind of wandering around or inhabiting spaces or listening to music or whatever. Well, I forgot what um, the other guy's character's name is, but like the scenes with the James Duvall character and the, the guy who he's seen for a while and they just kind of like are wandering around LA and just talking those, like those were my favorite scenes. Yeah. They kind of walk and talk before sunrise sort of vibe. Um, that, that stuff is fun. Um, and I, I generally enjoy the, the overall aesthetic of the movie um, I like the way that they use the camcorder and like this VCR or VHS scan line, like CRT television glare thing every now and then. It's kind of a way of adding sort of a, um, a film on top of the, the image. And when I say film, I don't mean like movie, but like a layer on top of it um, that reminds me of like, the I mentioned Gregoraki being big into shoegaze last week. Like it reminds me a little bit of just the the wash of effects that is like on top of your typical shoegaze song. Like you know, beneath there, there's like guitars and drums and stuff. But the main thing that you're experiencing is like the texture of like how it all blends together. And I think that he uses the technology to do that in really interesting ways. I just couldn't get down with the story here, unfortunately. Well, that's yeah. I, I wish it was more meandering. I think that would have made it more interesting. It, I, it's I think these three especially, and even living into a degree, they're all kind. They all you know, they seem very related to like television. You know, like I think you, like Gregor Aki uh, clearly is very um, clearly very fascinated by just like 
TV's um, hold on people, especially at like this period of time when you have, I think this is, this is kind of like that MTV VH1, um, like the heydays of that, especially with like the characters that we're seeing here. Um, and Doesn't a character say something about TV? I don't remember if it's in this one or in nowhere, but somebody's saying something about like, well, people have to have something to dedicate their lives to other than TV. Yeah, it's one of the uh, movies. Somebody says that, but yeah, like like all three of these movies, um, and even living into a degree, like they have this relationship to television and what, and kind of like television's hold on culture. Um, and I think that that it's very like, it kind of has this TV effect to a degree, you know, you mentioned it has this film layer, but I think it also has like this TV layer because all of the, um, the sequences are very like kind of quick and disjointed. And it kind of feels like almost like channel switching a lot. Like all three of the movies feel like channel switching. They're very just, That's a good way they're very that, like yeah. erratic and chaotic because it's, it's not like you're sitting there just watching one channel. It's kind of like you're switching through a bunch of different things and you kind of have like this heightened violence, you know, because you think of TV and people's relationship with it. Um, and just kind of the violence of TV at this, you know, this is post, you know, like Rodney King, this is, a, you know, you know, OJ trial, uh, you know, even going back as far as like Vietnam, like just seeing like this, you know, this, this violence kind of entering the home via the television set. Um, like, I think that all three of these movies have this, have this relationship to that. That's kind of fascinating. And it does feel like flipping channels in terms of like how it's edited together too, because it's um, a movie that's presented in like 15 vignettes or something. And the way that it switches back and forth between those vignettes, um, like it is stitched together with these documentary style, like talking head interviews. And there will be like um, text with like heavy scan lines over it on the screen um, that it just does feel like somebody is like flipping from channel to channel as you're kind of jumping back and forth between these things. There's not necessarily like closure at the end of a scene where it's like, okay, on to the next thing. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, and I, and I think that there's just kind of something that's kind of what keeps you at arm like to your point like what's difficult to kind of latch onto the characters because you kind of feel like you're flipping around so much that you never really you never really settle with any characters like you kind of understand to a degree what the dynamics are but you don't really fully you're never like sitting with one character for for long enough to really kind of understand who they are and so then like it kind of barrels its way to the end and like the end happens and that wasn't shocking there's literally a whole thing about um about uh you know lgbtq teens committing suicide and like uh and in you know high numbers like they have like a news article um about that and so it wasn't like a totally shocking thing but there's just kind of it you know i think all three of these movies have this kind of like when you know they all have this very abrupt kind of I'll say violent, but just kind of like a very abrupt, violent end. And I think the thing that Iraqi does really well on all three of them is that it kind of like you're in this, you're in this kind of disjointed fantasy to a degree. Like none, like none, none, none of the three movies feel like they're like, like in any sort of reality. And then like the end kind of like, pull, like pulls you out and you're stuck in reality uh, for like, 
probably um, uh, not, you know not longer than a minute and then it, the movie ends and i think like i'll give it even though i wasn't a big fan of the other two like um the ending of doom generation is super super good i agree yeah so um anything else on totally fucked up before we move on um I guess we could talk a little bit about James Duvall's character. Like he was the one that I latched on to here, but that was partially because I had already seen him in nowhere. Um, and so like, Oh, I know that guy. And then he shows up again in doom generation. Right. Um, I had a really hard time with him here though. I'm also having a hard time remembering like, what is his character here versus what is his character in nowhere? Because I feel like there's a lot of, blurring together yeah he, and he's characters. he's and he's a little bit less prominent in nowhere um and this one this is the one where he's like max apathetic right? yeah like he's he's going on dates with this guy and he's having sex with this guy but like at no point does he seem like he's actually enjoying it he's just kind of there um and he is the character that we're mostly following um, and that seems to be sort of the ethos of this movie. And, and to a certain extent, like that is the feeling that Gregoraki is exploring in all three of these movies. People who are just sort of like drifting through life sort of aimlessly without much of a um, like a drive or a goal. Um, they're just, you know, just vibing um, <laughs> in, a, in a way that like I don't know if Gregoraki is. I don't think he's saying it is good or bad. It's just like, here is a reality that his generation's teens are kind of experiencing. Well, and I think it's, you know, all three of them, I can see, you know, we'll talk about the, I have the Ebert review of Doom Generation where he's just like, ah. But um, I think it's something that I would be curious to hear how, like, teens, teenagers right now, would react to these movies because on it, they would love the fashion they would love the fashion the fashion is back in style but yeah. I, I think you know they're it's it's so it's so like they're very abrasive and they're so and but i think that he, like greg Araki does have this really keen sense of satire that he's kind of running through all three of them but he just does it in such a you kind of have to go down his wavelength because it's so abrasive and it's so um, volatile the entire time that you kind of have to you have to you know get on his level but at the same time like like we talked about last week like there's just this anger to it as well because it's just like these people are kind of drifting and I don't get the sense that he's saying they're drifting because um, I think it's it, it, like it seems to me it, it seems like he's kind of going like what else are they going to do like what else do you want us to do like right. like what like yeah. what 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 future is there for us to strive for other than to just do this and then die? And that's what makes it an entry in the apocalypse trilogy, the teenage apocalypse trilogy. That this is, I guess, the only movie where a and in the three where a character stops to talk about the apocalypse. Um, though I guess there's the thing in nowhere where somebody has like a doomsday prophecy that they share. But in totally fucked up, we we have like a more grounded realistic moment where a character is talking about climate change and talking about how like well isn't it fucked up that we are the generation that's going to see all this end um and like if you are sitting with that feeling like the desire to like go out and make a bunch of money for your boss um is like it's 
I don't know, does not feel particularly empowering or inspiring. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Let's go ahead. Let's move to the Doom generation since uh, this one. uh, So this one starts, like I mentioned, it says James Duvall as well, but it also stars uh, Rose McGowan, who I think is uh, a little bit more well-known, and Jonathan uh, uh, Shaik? Shake. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but he's one of the main characters in Splendor. Yeah. Which you'll watch next week. Um, but it follows teens Jordan White and Amy Blue, who pick up a handsome drifter named Xavier Red. Uh, Red tends to... Cre- I did not know that they had Red, White, and Blue as their last names yeah. until just now. I mean, That's funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Red tends to create combustible situations. For example, a trip to a convenience store leads to a clerk beginning decapitated. Afterwards, the trio voyages through small-town America where Amy is accosted by various men claiming to be her lovers, and she and Jordan find themselves drawn to Xavier. But can any amount of sex lift the sense of doom hanging over them? The characters of Amy Blue and Jordan White are based on the Mark Bayer comic strip Amy and Jordan. Uh, the Doom Generation was Iraqi's first uh, major film debut. This is the one he, I think he got a lot of um, acclaim for. It was shot mostly at night during January 1994 in Los Angeles on a budget of $800,000. The crew avoided well-known landmarks and shot in underdeveloped areas of urban sprawl to give the film an apocalyptic feel. The budget allowed Iraqi to hire a professional crew, making it the first of his films not shot by himself. And in 1995, Roger Ebert said, words like disaffected, distance, and deadpans flew from my mind onto my notepad while I was watching The Doom Generation. This is the kind of movie where the filmmaker hopes to shock you with sickening carnage and violent amorality, while at the same time holding himself carefully aloof from it with his style. He would be more honest and probably make a better movie if he got down in the trenches with the rest of us. (laughs) Um... Yeah, what did, uh, since you said this was your favorite, what did you uh, what did you like this about Doom Generation? Favorite. I liked it more than Living End too. Um, although I think that Living End is definitely the more historically important of the movies, right? It feels more like a landmark in queer cinema, um, whereas this one, of all the ones we've talked about so far, feels the most like a fun genre movie. Um, which you know to get into places we'll go in the series later like that's kind of what i like most about greg Araki, like the way that he plays with genre in movies like splendor which is a riff on the rom-com formula and then uh, uh smiley face which is kind of a riff on the stoner comedy formula um i really liked this like version of the it's kind of a bonnie and clyde road movie it's kind of like a tarantino riff um, though I don't know exactly what Tarantino had out in 1995. Was that the year that Pulp Fiction came out? Yes, um, I'll look. I'll be the I'll be the, the person real quick yeah. to look that up. Um, so that was uh, just after Pulp Fiction. So Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs were out. I mean, I in that case, like it's maybe unlikely that Greg Araki is intentionally riffing on Tarantino, but maybe playing with similar material that Tarantino would become known for playing with. Um, it actually reminds me a, a lot of Death Proof. Well, that's what I was gonna say. I mean, uh, Rose McGowan's in Death Proof, so I'm, she's I would in Death Proof. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought I also like just on a very. Um, surface aesthetic level I thought this was the movie that looked the nicest um, It's it doesn't have that same like 
lo-fi VHS shoegazy sort of quality that Totally Fucked Up has, but it like in exchange, it kind of looks like a real movie. Like it doesn't look like something that somebody made, you know, with their friends. Um, and and like I think that Gregor Rocky is a great crafter of images. Um, whenever he like really gets to flex his muscles in that department, which he does a little bit in Nowhere, um, as well. Um, but I I generally like um, I think the thing that made this movie stand out for me over the others is just how focused it is. Um, and that's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean it's better. You know, they're, um, totally fucked up and nowhere are doing their own thing with like a lack of focus. That's, that's the idea is to like being very disparate, sort of like Robert Altman esque in terms of how your attention is sort of divided between all these characters who are going in a lot of different directions. Doom Generation, we're just stuck with these three people. Um, they have like a very well fleshed out relationship um, and the actors playing all three are excellent. Um, and I was, I found it very like tense and funny and compelling. Um, and yeah, I, this one just like worked for me on a level that the others felt like fun experiments that didn't quite pay off in my um, estimation. Yeah. I liked, I liked that this one, like, they all, like I mentioned before, they all live in their own just kind of like made up reality. I loved, I loved the just, I don't know. I, I enjoyed the reality of this one where everybody was just like, it was kind of like you were in like Grand Theft Auto, like the video game, mm-hmm. like, like it just anywhere you went, yeah. it was, it became wildly violent, you know, like I mentioned the well, convenience. like, um, you know, to, to bring up Tarantino again, the scene in Pulp Fiction when John Travolta accidentally shoots Marvin in the back of the car, like that scene, almost every scene in this movie feels like that scene. <laughs> like there's something crazy that just happens. Well, it also uh, has like the, like I, my, my personal favorite one was when they go to, it's like a bar or something and Parker Posey's there. Parker Posey's there. And Parker yeah. Posey's wonderful because she's, because she's one of the people who was like an ex lover of the Rose McGowan character. And it's just like, and then like, like they kill the guy she's with and she's just like over, she's like, ah, and like, I forgot what she's doing. She's like, just like holding his face. I don't I, don't know. I love Parker Posey. She's a, she eventually puts like a sword through somebody's crotch. <laughs> yeah, like, well, no, she has a sword and she swings at them and misses and hits the guy she's with hits and just and hits yeah. him in the crotch. And she's like, "I'm so sorry. I'm so." Well, so- to go back to the idea of the movie having a lot of focus, like Parker Posey's character is a good ex- is like a point on this line that the movie is tracing where it's it's sort of structured like a fairy tale or something when they like keep running into another one of rose mcgowan's like evil exes (laughs) Uh, and they like become increasingly like um scary um until eventually like the last the last evil ex sort of shows up and you know causes the the catastrophe at the the close of the when, movie. when you run into nazis it usually causes a problem right 
Right. Um, I also like that there's just a random scene with FBI agents saying that they're looking for him, and then it never follows through. That yeah, that may be a, <laughs> a point against the focus of this movie. No, I liked it. It was part, random. Yeah. It was just like you have this scene with like this FBI officer, like we gotta find these kids. They're doing stuff, and then you never hear <laughs> from them again. I loved that, it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know. I I think the the ending is just so like whoa like 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 just in terms of like the last sequence that i like it kind of just to me it just hit this level where i was like okay i'm good i'm good yeah it's thank you new french extreme thank you after a certain point Yeah. yeah um but it does lead to like i mentioned before the 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 ending shot where like you kind of just like you've been living in this parallel reality of just chaos where yeah you like go to the to the fast food restaurant in the drive-thru and the guy like pulls out a shotgun and is like, I loved you forever. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the world these characters inhabit for most of it is really interesting because you're right that it's not reality. It's not the America that we know though. It's like a heightened version of the America that we know where like that all of the convenience stores and places they go into have these like huge, they live style like propaganda posters hung up so like um instead of like shoplifters will be prosecuted there's one that says shoplifters will be executed (laughs) and rose mcgowan is like standing like perfectly framed in front of it uh before the first big violent act of the movie goes down um i also like i also like that they have this like the tv news scene where they just show like all the people massacred in the convenience store and then the one guy like yeah. pops up and he's like whoa <laughs> and they're both like very badly green screened over it um yeah very funny that um and like also when isn't there a part where they're watching tv and there's like some weird like stop motion like black and white violent thing on the screen i forget um and like it's obviously just a thing that greg Araki made up um uh, but uh, James Duvall's character is watching it like, oh, I love this movie or whatever. I, I do want, I, you know, James Duvall's in all three of the movies. This is my favorite James Duvall character who's just. It's the best James Duvall character. He's just like happy yeah. to be there. He's just like enjoying the ride. <laughs> he's very sweet. Like, he's very sweet and sad. Um, and I felt like I got to know him on a level that I did not get to know him in the other movies. Um, but, like, I think the movie is also pretty sweet as well, despite the fact that it is a movie that is like punctuated at several points by like really extreme violence. Um, and also like sexual betrayal and stuff like that. Like there is something to the sort of joyous fluidity of this movie. Like the subtitle is a heterosexual movie by Greg Araki, but like it is a heterosexual movie that is like always on the verge of becoming a homosexual movie. Um, and like these characters are sort of, um, they are in like creating their own world together on, on this road trip that they're taking. And it is like this escape from, you know, the, the oppressiveness of like the America that they're used to. Um, and, and then like, as soon as like, it is about to fully tip over into like this totally like bisexual polyamorous utopia that these these characters have created with one another nazis that's when like the fucking nazis show up and and <laughs> attack them right yeah 
Which, like, ain't that just the way? Ain't, you know, you want to live in a bisexual, polyamorous <laughs> utopia and then fucking Nazis show up. Um, I don't know. I guess I appreciate it more than... I like it more now. I'll give it a, I'll give it a pass. Glad I could sway you on yeah. Doom Generation. It's good. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, we're not going to get anywhere on this one, I feel like, so... Nowhere's rough, yeah. So um, let's... let's look, nowhere... I don't have too much on this one, um... It stars. I mean, it's James Duvall and Rachel True are probably two of the main people, but it stars a gazillion fucking people. Um, you know, there's. I'm I'm trying to think. Christina Applegate shows up in this. Um, Ryan Philippa. Uh, uh, James Ritter has a small part. Um, did you mention Rose McGowan is in this as well? Yeah, Rose McGowan. Denise Richards shows up. Um, there's a ton of fucking people who like you recognize, um, but it's it, like the main, the main story is it's it's you have an alienated 18 year old man who struggles with daily life, fluctuating romantic status with his bisexual polyamorous girlfriend Mel, and conflicting feelings for a shy, a shy, uh, gay classmate. Um, but it also I forgot what the let me find what was the letterboxed uh, log line for it, which I feel like is a little bit better. It's described nine hundred two one zero on acid. Yeah, described as nine hundred two one zero on acid. The film tells the story of a day in the lives of a group of high school kids in Los Angeles and the strange lives they. Live. Let me try to see who are the other people I I missed. Beverly D'Angelo has a small role. Um, Heather Graham, uh, I think Heather Graham is the person who uh, uh, you know has a nice scene with Ryan yeah. Philippa where he goes down on her during her period and then comes Heather up and it's just like character. Like her characterization is that she gets turned on by gore, and like there's a scene where somebody talks about getting like eaten by a cat or something and like that turns her on um it's really weird they like cut themselves at one point before they have sex yeah um yeah you have it's kind of it's tough because you have a bunch of different things happening so yeah you have like the james duvall character is in love with you know is in love with the rachel true character but she like is dating this other girl and kind of is not committing to him. You also have just the, you have the whole storyline with the, the character who is like kind of based on like a 90210 teen heartthrob who, the, who, oh uh, who picks up yeah. the girl and then like, <sighs> like rapes her or, or, or raping her. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, like physically harms her in the process in a way that's like really, really hard to watch. Yeah. I didn't like that. Um, and, then, and then you have like the other, couple um and who like the and the guy is like really like gets really like juiced up and like beats the guy to death with like a campbell soup can i don't know there's a lot going on here is is more violent than doom generation yeah but i mean it also lives in like this this just kind of strange like like the reality this one has probably the the most distinct art direction like i saw a lot of people on letterbox mentioning like the any room that you go in in this movie is like any bedroom any bedroom you go in is just like insane it's like it's pretty much like if andy warhol designed a bunch of bedrooms this is where it is i've seen it described as like the interior like the mind space of the characters being sort of blown up onto the walls and the decorations right so there are characters who have just like 12 tvs stacked up all like turned to a static channel 
there are characters where like there there are rooms where there's this huge like Helvetica font like writing on the wall like plastering every single inch of the wall um there's like one room the girl who gets raped like crawls back into her bedroom through the window and there's just like flowers everywhere because you're supposed to think of her as like this pure innocent girl who has been taken advantage of um the one the one room i liked it wasn't even really a bedroom was james duvall's like taking a shower and like the whole like bathroom is just like white it's like well he's masturbating that's like a really great scene but he's in he's masturbating in the shower He's masturbating in the shower and like when you first see him, he is in like this white like Wonka vision room Um, and it's like cutting very seamlessly back and forth between like three different sexual fantasies he's having while he's masturbating. And then like his mom knocks on the door and like now we're not in that mind space anymore. Now we're in just like a normal old bathroom. Um, so, like, the way that Rocky plays with, like, space and, like, the way that it's visually depicted is really interesting. And then, all, and then all the time, like, there's, like, this whole, there's these bugs that are, like, abducting people. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the, the apocalypse part of this, um, it's most pronounced in Nowhere. Like, the world does not actually end in either of the other movies, though in Totally Fucked Up, somebody talks about, like, the real ways in which the world could end. Doom Generation, I don't totally understand why it's in the Apocalypse Trilogy, to be honest. Um, he, he made another movie later on down the line called Kaboom that very much seems like it is trying to be movie four in the Apocalypse Trilogy. Um, but this is the one where, like, aliens have come to Earth and there's like some weird like Christian cult who's prophesied that today's doomsday and today's the rapture and a bunch of characters or a couple of characters like maybe get raptured like they just get popped out of their out of their clothes and nobody else um, notices well that's the Um, whole that's the whole ending is that this guy that James Duvall's kind of getting close with he gets abducted and then you have the whole... Turns into a bug. Time, turns into a bug. And it's... <laughs> I kind of liked it because it was like this kind of Looney Tunes moment because he turns into a bug and he's like, I'm getting out of here. And then like... <laughs> yeah, it's like a different person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like the way that the apocalypse happens is very strange and incongruous, right? Like there are parts of it where there are just like big reptilians walking around. There are parts of it where there's a person turning into a bug. There are parts of it where there's like weird space people in tracksuits, or not tracksuits, but like jumpsuits um, uh, running around with guns. And like none of these things feel like they have to do with the others. But it's just like, this is the many facets of like this weird apocalypse that nobody in the movie ever really wraps their head around. This one, this, nobody has the full amount of information about. This one definitely feels the most like he's just tossing a bunch of stuff at the wall and kind of seeing what sticks and what doesn't. And that's why, like, at least with the other two, even though they kind of meander around, like there is still like a kind of there's like a th- like this is a story and i and like you know i read two different log lines like i don't really know what's going on in this one other than that you just kind of have like all of these separate things happening to different characters and then you have bugs that kind of remind me of something like you know it, it feels like a 
like Mar like Tim Burton's Mars Attack or something. Like it seems yeah. almost like Looney Tune uh cartoonish. Or, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. So, I mean, it's just like, well, it's just, it feels almost just like cartoonish to a degree. So, like, you have just kind of like this hyper real violence with kind of this cartoonishness to it. And, and even the people, I mean, like we're describing, like the the spaces and the landscapes and the people we're seeing, like everything just feels very cartoonish and, and not, you know, like, like again, like that's kind of its reality that it, it lives in almost like this. This one feels almost even more... Um, engaged in like that TV space. Well, if there's one thing that I really appreciate about this whole trilogy, it's the way that it kind of like is um, incrementally like zooming out from reality or like becoming more and more abstracted from reality as it goes along. Like totally fucked up is I, when I first, I actually watched like the first 30 minutes of it or so with Jesse months ago and we thought that it was a documentary um, and ended up turning it off because it's like playing with documentary style, right? Um, and then Doom Generation is like much more of like a movie movie, but it's playing in like this weird genre space where like all genre movies are kind of elevated from reality to one extent or another. And this movie is no is like so far removed from reality that it's not in a genre anymore. It's just like cuckoo land like gregoraki land right um and your mileage may vary on how much you enjoy that i i was vibing with it for a little while and eventually found it to be kind of obnoxious like there were a lot of things that i could tell like oh these are jokes but i'm not laughing at them they're just this is just weird. I mean, it almost reminds me of like what we talked about with everything everywhere all at once a couple of weeks ago. Like when everything is just random, like it just stops being funny after a certain point. Yeah, I don't. There's there's definitely funny moments like in these movies. And I, I think that, you know, it's, it kind of just leans more in like the I would say totally fucked up has more of like the better lines. Um than the other two but yeah this the the other that's why i think i kind of lost a little bit with doom generation and nowhere because it's much more just on like the heightened visuals and like the thing i liked about totally fucked up and in the living end was it had that heightened reality but then also like he just kind of had like this very it 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 felt like very like film school level like dialogue but like i kind i think it perfectly worked for the 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 whole vibe that it was going for like it you know and i felt like it was a little bit smarter than just being kind of film school dialogue and so like um whenever that kind of went away because the other two movies are very just focused on action um it just kind of gets at least to me like i just kind of got exhausted after a while and i mean granted we watched three of these at least like i don't know about you but i watched three of these in a row over the course of three days and i was like i'm tired yeah <laughs> i feel yeah i i, was I, tired, I literally yeah. sent to i literally sent to our slack chat uh the clip from you know a screenshot from the simpsons where marge is just like kids can you lighten up a little bit <laughs> Yeah, this was a movie where like i was concerned for the kids involved right like i recently had this feeling when jesse and i watched the pilot episode of euphoria and i was like 
Man, if this is even a little bit re relatable for Zoomers, I'm worried about Zoomers, right? And I guess that this is doing a similar thing for Gen X, um, where like, if if it really was, you know, this much sex, drugs, and rock and roll, um, like, kind of glad I missed that. Like this, this seems this <laughs> yeah, seems like a lot. It doesn't seem great. <laughs> yeah, and like even the sex part is like not fun. Like the the sex Gregoraki movies generally like really revel in like um, it physical eroticism. Like he really he doesn't try to shy away from that being like a dirty thing or a you know a dangerous thing in his movies. He he tends to focus on it being like this um, euphoric bliss that people can share together, and like the way that it's experienced in nowhere is like really unpleasant for most of it. Like there's a character who has um, a male character who has pierced nipples, and there's a there's a scene where he's like having sex with two women I think and they like bite his piercing and pull it out of his body during sex and I'm like hey I don't know if we missed the scene where they agreed to that beforehand but this seems like not okay right there's a scene where like is it Heather Graham's character like they use chocolate as lube they rub chocolate on her vagina and he goes down on her and then comes back up and has like chocolate all over his face. Like this is disgusting people. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, there's, it's just a lot. it's a lot, you know, it's, I don't, I don't know what else to describe it. It's a lot. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, the, out of the three, nowhere is the toughest to, to kind of, like I, I, I would I, I would I think I would recommend totally fucked up or doom generation you you definitely have to be in a specific mood to deal with it because it's not it has it's a little bit of a ride quality to it but then at the end you're just like I would like to get off now yeah I um, knew that Gregor Rocky had some like difficult films like I knew that mysterious skin is like famously a difficult movie um but I did not know like um to what extent Gregoraki was like an abrasive filmmaker in his early years. Like this is like, if we're just following his career up to this point, and these are the only four movies he's put out living End, totally fucked up doom generation nowhere. Like those are some rough movies. I think that the reputation that Gregoraki would have on this podcast, um, if, if we were like following them as they came out would be, he's kind of an edgy provocateur. Um, Though, like, that would not be giving the sincerity of, like, the emotions behind his films enough credit. But, like, they are, like, hard to watch in a lot of ways. Yeah, all I'm asking, uh, in, in, in total honesty, I'm, I'm, I'm being totally honest, is, like, can we just, like, go, like, can we just have, like, a, like, a chill like a chill series please <laughs> like can we just like take it hey, down a notch Jesse wants to do the Muppets that's fine <laughs> I'm completely fine with that there's nothing there's nothing provocative you'll in like it. Splendor I think Splendor is like such a nice movie there's that's yeah. I that's fine I just it was just three straight days of this yeah. and I was just like oh my fucking god dude sorry I didn't know I didn't know that these were, these were so rough yeah, let's let's do a little background before we pick series. <laughs> well, that's a group group, group pick. Yeah. It's just a group group rule. 
little background research, and then we can do series. Um, all right. Well, I'll wrap up episode 402 of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on uh, Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary where we list all the movies that we talked about in this episode. If you'd like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary. Um, you can, you know, do a dollar or five dollars. Just let us, you know, anything you want to give. It's a, if you just want to support the show, we appreciate you. Um, thank you to our, our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Mathathi, uh, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Next week, we're going to continue our Greg Araki series with, as Andrew mentioned, 1999 Splendor. So hopefully it'll get a little bit lighter. It's cute. All right. That's the, I just need lighter. <laughs> I don't care. I just need lighter. Um, until then, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.